0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the first chapter, verses 51, 52, and 53. Verses 51 to 53, in the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. Now these words come, as you will recall, in what is commonly known as the Magnificat. These words uttered by Mary, to whom was given the privilege of bearing the Son of God in the flesh after she had heard the salutation addressed to her by her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And I call your attention to these particular words, this particular section in Mary's great statement, in this Magnificat, because I want to try to show you that it helps us to see and to realize What are, after all, some of the central principles in connection with this gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the kind of person whom I find it very difficult to understand at all is the person who doesn't believe in the devil, in the prince of the power of the earth, in the controller of the forces of evil and of sin. I say I find it difficult to understand such a person were it merely for this reason, that his activity is so obvious, his working surely should be quite self-evident to everybody. And there is no point, perhaps, During the whole of the year, there is no aspect of the Christian gospel in which one sees so clearly the working, the efforts, and the evil results of such efforts on the part of the devil as in connection with this season of Advent, this time of Christmas, when the church throughout the world thinks in particular of the coming of the Son of God into this world, of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Because is it not obvious to us that the real meaning of this great event, this momentous, this central event in many ways in the whole history of the human race, is it not obvious, I say, that the real meaning of this is so largely obscured? Men think of it... uh, In one of two main ways, we see it already this year, we shall see more of it during these next days, it happens year after year, some evaporate this great event into just some vague general feeling of goodwill, good cheer, happiness, an occasion for drink, and a spirit of friendliness. That, I suppose, as regards the world in general, is the main notion and idea concerning the meaning of Christmas. It's just that, and no more. But then there are others, and this is a large group also, who seem to think that the central purpose of this event is just to exhort men and women to do something. Put into operation this uh, spirit of uh, goodwill. They regard it primarily as an occasion when uh, one can be talking about war and peace. And one makes use of this in order to uh, plead with people to strive to put an end to war, to abolish armaments, and to get the nations to be friendly, and so on. Now, there is no question at all, but that looking at the position in the main, one is entitled to say that. The prevailing opinion is divided more or less into those two groups. It's just the one or the other of those two. Well, I say I'm calling your attention to this tremendous statement here in the Magnificat in order that we may see together this evening how utterly and completely false all that is. If ever there was a subject which needed thought primarily, it is this whole question of the birth of the Son of God. That is why I preach this evening and do not have a carol service. You must think before you sing, otherwise your singing is going to be of no value. This is an occasion demanding sober, serious, vital thinking. There is no season of the year, I say, that the devil would so rob us of in the way that I've indicated as this particular season in connection with the birth of our blessed Lord. Very well then, let us consider what we are told here about these fundamental principles concerning the nature of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is the real message of Christmas? The first thing that stands out obviously is this. It is good news. It is meant to be a proclamation. Everything about it suggests that Don't you remember the beginnings, if you go home tonight and read the whole of this first chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke, you'll find that from the beginning it was like that. There is Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, doing his duty, taking his turn, as it were, according to the course of the priests, doing his ordinary duty, anticipating and expecting nothing. Suddenly an angel appears to him. And the angel doesn't ask him so much to do something as to make an announcement to him, telling him what God is going to do. Elizabeth, his wife, who had been barren, and they'd agreed that they'd never have any children, the announcement is she's going to bear a son, a child, who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah who is about to come. That's how it begins. And then in the case of Mary, you get exactly the same thing. Here is this simple maiden obviously anticipating nothing. Suddenly, the archangel Gabriel appears to her, begins to address her and says, Hail thou that art blessed. It's an announcement. And so it continues. And Mary makes it perfectly clear in her song, even as Elizabeth has already done, that she grasps this. The gospel, my dear friends, is good news. It can't be therefore primarily an exhortation. It isn't some vague, nebulous spirit. It's a mighty proclamation. You must think of this in terms of a town crier, in terms of an announcement made upon the wireless or anywhere else. That's the way to approach it. But the world isn't approaching it like that. It's taking it, I say, at the instigation of the devil and twisting it into something that belongs to its own philosophy. And it's a denial of this. You see, you can look at the Bible like this, if you like, for me to put it in the modern form. You know how from time to time, when something really remarkable is going to be announced, preliminary intimations are given that at such and such an hour, a great statement is going to be made, an announcement is going to be made. We had it especially during the war. It still happens in a sense. Hours before the thing happens, we are told, listen, at such and such a time, you'll hear a most marvelous thing, and we're all expectant and waiting. Then comes the announcement. Now, that's the sort of thing, you know, we've got in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you've got the preliminary announcements. That's the prophets. They began to say a long way back, look here, something's going to happen. God's going to do something. A proclamation, an announcement's going to be made. And everybody was waiting. Oh, the years had passed, many had forgotten. But at last, it came. Good news, proclamation, announcement, something that leads to rejoicing. Now, here I say is the thing that stands out uh, on the very surface of these preliminary portions in these Gospels. The second thing I would make as a point, which should be surely self-evident, is this that it is something entirely of God. It's an announcement of what God is doing, is going to do. An announcement of what God has done. That's the essence of it all. It stands out in this Magnificat. God has done this. God is going to manifest his power. That's what Christmas is about. Not what men are going to do, not what men should do. No, no, what God has done, we are asked to stand back and to look and listen. I see everything in these early chapters should make us see that. Look at those shepherds about whom we've been singing. There they were in the field at night, watching their flocks. They'd done the same thing hundreds, thousands of times before. They were expecting nothing at all. Suddenly they hear this singing, this announcement, and they're arrested, and they look up. That's how Christmas comes. You see, God has done something. Indeed, it's all of God. The gospel is a great record, I say, of God's mighty activity. It is the showing forth of his power. As Zacharias gives it subsequently so perfectly, the essence of the message is this, God hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, if we don't start with our thinking about Christmas in those terms, we are already wrong. We've gone astray. You see, this is something that comes to us and should make us stand and look and lift up our heads and say, well, now then, we're listening. What has God done? That's the thing. God has done something. God's action. A manifestation of the power, the right hand of God's power. And indeed... I want to emphasize the fact that it is entirely of God, exclusively of God. In other words, let me put it to you like this once more. The gospel is not in the first instance a call upon us to do anything at all. That is where this travesty of the gospel comes in. As if the whole message of Christmas was this appeal to us to say, now then, be at your best during this season. let make use of this season. Now, can't you conspire together and act together and try and get rid of war, bring in peace, as if it were something primarily political, something we are going to do, a spirit that we are going to put into operation and into manifestation. But, my dear friend, it isn't that at all. What is it? It is this. It is an announcement of one of the wonderful works of God. You know, the whole Bible is a record of the activity of God. God creating, God coming down to men after he'd fallen nation, God giving it kings, God sending prophets, and when the fullness of the times was come, God sending forth his own Son, made of a woman made under the law. The wonderful works of God. I protest in the name of the Bible, in the name of God, at this twisting, this perverting of the gospel into something which is an appeal to us to do something primarily. It isn't that. It is a proclamation and an announcement of what God has done in the person of his only begotten Son. Now, this becomes particularly clear and evident, I would have thought, in the words that are used here by Mary and to which I am calling attention, in this way. That this is not only God's action, but it is a complete reversal of everything that men have ever thought or still think. Not only is this not a record of what men have done or are supposed to do, it is the exact opposite of all men's thinking. It cuts right across it. It turns it upside down. And that is the thing which I want to unfold to you now. The most surprising thing that's ever happened in this world is the coming of the Son of God into it. The most revolutionary thing in the world tonight is the Christian gospel. Why? Well, because it is the exact opposite almost of anything that you and I would ever have imagined or thought of. Let me show you what I mean. Look at it like this in the first place. Look at the way in which God has done this thing. That's what we are reminded of so forcibly in this particular section we are looking at. When God comes to take the action that is to save mankind, how does he do it? Who would ever have anticipated or imagined? that he would do it by the birth of a helpless babe. Yet yeah, that's exactly how he did it. Who would have thought that when this babe was to be born if that was the way? That the woman selected would be some unknown nonentity, some ordinary handmaiden, poor. You and I wouldn't do it like that, would we? The world wouldn't do it like that. We wouldn't start by doing it through a babe. We'd have somebody suddenly coming out of heaven. Great apparition. Great display. We are fond of drama. We are fond of propaganda. We are fond of doing things in a big way, a blowing of trumpets, some great announcement. That's our way. It wasn't God's way. He did it like this. And, of course, if we had decided that it should happen through a babe like this, well, at least we'd have chosen a queen. Some great person must be the mother. When the Son of God comes into the world, why, it must be from the most dignified and the most glorious person we can find anywhere in the world. But it's a lowly handmaiden that nobody would ever heard of. It was the one chosen by God. You see, this is something that cuts across all our ideas and all our notions. And then you notice the other thing There are dozens of these points. I'm simply briefly glancing at one or two of them in passing this evening. Look where he was born. Where do you think the Son of God is going to be born when he comes into this world? Well, I suppose it's in the most marvelous, most fabulous palace that's ever been built, ever conceived of, costing millions, billions of pounds, all of gold and all of marble, everything that's wonderful. Well, I mustn't... Waste your time. He was born in a stable with the cattle by his side and the straw and the manger. My dear friends, this is Christmas. Get rid of your human notions. Christmas isn't the acme of human thinking. Christmas isn't an extension of all men proposes to do. It's the exact opposite of it all. It's God. And the thing that is emphasized is the antithesis, the surprise, the amazement of it all. But come, let us look at it more in detail. Notice the way in which God's action for the salvation of men condemns and indeed demolishes all in which man trusts or has ever trusted. Did you notice that? He hath showed strength with his arm. How? Well, he hath scattered. It's a very strong word there. It means that he hath scattered completely until nothing's left. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty. He hath, the rich, he hath sent empty away. Isn't it almost incredible that anybody could misread this gospel? It is, as I'm saying, a complete reversal of everything men have ever thought or said or proposed. It, it, I show you that, I say, by the way, in which it condemns, it demolishes, it scatters. Everything in which men, by nature, trust, what are these? Well, you notice the first is his own wisdom. It's important we should read that second half of verse 51 correctly. He hath scattered... Who? Well, those who are proud in the imagination of their hearts. And that means, of course, this. Those who are haughty with respect to the reasoning or the understanding power of their hearts. The proud, the haughty, those, and this is the meaning of the word that is used, are those who put themselves above others. You know the brainy people, the experts. The gospel of Jesus Christ, you see, is always contemporary. It was contemporary and up to date nearly 2,000 years ago when it first came. It is equally contemporary tonight. There were haughty, proud people in the imagination of their hearts then. We've still got them. The picture is of those who are very proud of their ability and their knowledge, their understanding, their brains, their capacity to think. The proud or the haughty in the understanding of their hearts. Here we are referred to people who are proud of their intellect, proud of their understanding, proud of their knowledge. The world has always had many such people. You'll find many such described. In your Old Testament and at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, the world was even then full of them. Who are they? Well, primarily the great Greek philosophers. There had been a mighty succession of them, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and their schools, thinking, genius, at its very highest, and trying to understand life, and proud of it, proud of their learning, proud of their knowledge proud of their understanding. And what we are told here out of the mouth of Mary about the gospel and its effect is this, that the coming of the Son of God into the world scatters them, dismisses them, demolishes them, and does so completely. How does it do so? Well, fortunately, we have many answers to the questions supplied by the New Testament itself. Our Lord himself supplies one notable answer. You'll find it at the end of the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Our Lord one day uttered these words to his Father. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father. For so it seemed good in thy sight. What's he mean? He means this. He says, well, it's obvious that the wise and prudent, the philosophers, the teachers, the great men, the great intellects, are confounded by me. They're confused by me. They're questioning me, trying to catch me, trying to trap me. They're not believing in me. They're remaining where they were. And it's the babes, the ignoramuses, who, as it were, are crowding into the kingdom." They were made to look foolish. It was hid from the wise and prudent. The great minds, the great brains were left where they were. But it doesn't even stop at that, it goes further. The Apostle Paul has a very interesting commentary on this. Indeed, it's obvious, isn't it, that in this Magnificat we have in a inner kind of natural. What is the very essence of the gospel as worked out in greater detail by our Lord himself and by his servant, the apostle Paul. Paul puts it like this. The world by wisdom knew not God. And when the world by wisdom, by philosophy, by reason and understanding, failed to arrive at God, it pleased God by the foolishness of the thing preached to save such as believe. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Here they are. These are the men who are seeking after wisdom. The proud in the imagination of their hearts. The men who are proud of their intellect, their knowledge, their science, their understanding. These men who can give a rational explanation. They pit their minds against it all. Well, what we are told is that the effect of the coming of the Son of God into the world scatters them. Dismisses them. Makes them look silly. And you know it does. And it's still doing so. There has never perhaps been a tongue history when the philosophers have been made to look quite so silly as they are today. What do I mean? I mean this. It is the philosophers and the scientists and others who have been teaching us for a hundred years and more that man is evolving and developing and advancing and that by his own efforts he can make a perfect world. And they believed it, and they've been preaching it, and driving it home to us. And yet the whole world is making them look utterly ridiculous. They're being scattered in the imaginations of their hearts. Yes, you know, but there is something that scatters them much more than the contemporary history does. And that is this message concerning Christmas. And it does it like this. This is the final proof of their failure to find God. Do you listen to them sometimes on these programmes? Brain Trust. Any questions? Do you hear them talking their folly about immortality and about various other things? How foolish they seem. They don't know, you see. They've no knowledge, they've no understanding. They've been trying to understand the mystery, and they can't, of course. They fail completely. And they have their ideas about God, but they're not satisfied. How can they be? How can they define God? How can a man with a finite mind encompass the eternal, the infinite, and the absolute? They're made to look silly, aren't they? Well, that's exactly what Mary says. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to denounce intellect. I'm not here to denounce ability. I'm not here even to denounce philosophy. But what I am here to denounce is this, is pride of intellect, pride of knowledge, pride of understanding, the attitude of the modern man who says, I am sufficient and complete. God, he says, very well, put him on the table. Let me examine him. I'll tell you what I think about God. That's what I'm denouncing. And that is what the coming of Christ squatters, makes it look idiotic. Why? Well, with all its wisdom and ability and learning, he hasn't arrived at God. He has failed completely. They never get further than saying, perhaps, what if, perchance, it is possible, and no more. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. He exposes them. But he doesn't stop doing it like that, of course. The proud in the imagination of their hearts are scattered in another way, and it's this. When the true wisdom confronted them, they couldn't see it. The apostle Paul, of course, is very eloquent on this. This is where the intellectually proud have been made to look ridiculous. They say they are men of wisdom, and when they see truth, they'll grasp it. They like to call themselves seekers after truth. My dear friend, if you call yourself a seeker after truth, you're denying the gospel. Truth can never be found by you nor by any other man.
1: Truth is revealed.
0: But here are the seekers after truth. They say we want nothing but truth. Give us truth. Show us truth. Help us to arrive at truth. It's all we want. Suddenly, truth stands before them in the person of a man. And they didn't recognize him. The apostle Paul puts it like this. Whom the princes of this world didn't know. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Monstrous, they said. Son of God, a carpenter? Ridiculous. Son of God, an ignoramus, an artisan? Impossible. Wisdom must always be in a philosopher, must belong to the schools. Who is this fellow? They ridiculed him. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks foolishness. And by saying that it was foolishness, they were displaying their own folly. They were being scattered in the imagination of their hearts. They didn't recognize truth when it was standing incarnate before their eyes. So Mary is perfectly right. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And as I've already anticipated... He does it uh, supremely, of course, by the way in which God chose to do it. When he chose to send wisdom to men, he sends it thus in the form of a babe and a carpenter, an ordinary man, as it were. And so what the Greeks and the wisdom and the wise and the proud of intellect have been totally and utterly incapable of doing, God does it in this extraordinary manner. And the wise and the proud are the laughingstock of the universe at this moment. They are the people above all others who in their pride of intellect are rejecting God's wisdom, God's power, God's way of salvation. He does indeed scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The second thing is that he puts down the mighty from their seats. What does this mean? Well, of course, this is a great theme in the Bible. You get a great deal of this in the Old Testament. God is always doing this. He knows that the final sin in the heart of men is the sin of pride. Proud of intellect, proud of position, proud of power, proud of status. And so, you see, God is always fighting that and always demolishing it, always throwing it down. Look at how he's done it in the whole case of the nation of the Jews. There were the nations of the world, proud of their might and their prowess and their armies. God made a nation for himself out of one man called Abram, and a very weak nation it was, and just a little country. Palestine, what a small bit of earth it is. This little nation amidst the mighty dynasties of Assyria and Babylon and Nineveh and all the rest of them. You see, that's God's way. And then, of course, he's always ridiculing and bringing down these mighty through his own people. You see, it typified to perfection in the great story about David and Goliath. Here is the mighty, on their seats, the Goliath, the great power that is irresistible and is threatening to demolish the whole world. And a stripling of a lad comes along who hasn't a sword and who hasn't armor. He's only got a sling and five stones and he just flings one of them, strikes the forehead, brings to earth, demolishes this mighty tyrant. That's God's. that's God's way of dealing with the world, you know. That's what God has always been doing. That's what he's doing in his son. He doesn't send a great chieftain, a great prince. He sends a babe. And so it has continued. Look at it in the case of a man like Nebuchadnezzar. He'd conquered so much and he was so wealthy. He sets himself up as a god. Tells people to worship him. And you know what happened to him? You look at him in a few months, you'll find him like an ox eating grass in a field. His nail had grown like talons and hair had covered his body and the dew falls upon him. A maniac, a raving maniac. What's happening? Oh, God is putting down the mighty from their seats. But he has done it finally in the supreme manner. When the King of kings and the Lord of lords Came into this world. He came into a stable. If you don't feel a sense of holy laughter within you, I don't see that you have a right to think that you're a Christian. Thank God, this is gospel. This is salvation. God, turning upside down, reversing everything we've ever thought, everything we've taken pride in. The mighty, why, He will pull them down from their seats. He's been doing so. He's still doing so. You let any man arise and say he's going to govern the whole world. He's going to be the God of this world. You needn't be afraid. He'll be put down. Every dictator has gone down. They'll all go down. Finally the devil and all that belong to him will go down to the lake of fire. And will be destroyed forever. The Son of God has come into the world to do that. But then take the third thing. The rich, I am told, he hath sent empty away. Now, this isn't to be taken in a material sense primarily, but in a moral sense. What is the effect of the coming of the Son of God into this world? It is to send the rich empty away. That's the great story that I see in the four Gospels. What are you talking about, says someone? Well, look at it, in the rich young ruler. Here's a rich man, rich in money. Yes, but priding himself on his richness in morality. All these have I kept from my youth upwards. How rich he is in morals and in ethics and in righteousness. But you know, when he stands before this son of God... This babe of Bethlehem who's has now become a man and is beginning to teach at the age of 30, when the rich young ruler who has done all this and kept the commandments of God and is full and overflowing with righteousness, he looks into the face of son, the Son of God. He listens to his words. And what is the end of the story? He went away sorrowful. He came with pride. He went away sorrowful. His riches were made to look very tawd. Oh, but he's only one of many instances. You know, this was the whole trouble with the Pharisees, and that is why they hated our Lord. That's why they finally conspired to crucify him and to kill him. You know, the effect of the coming of the Son of God upon the Pharisees was to send them empty away, and they were so rich. What do you mean, says someone? I mean this, that when they listened to the preaching of the Son of God, they could see their righteousness disappearing. All they'd boasted of, all they'd gloated in, all they'd prided themselves on, their exceptional righteousness, they who'd never committed adultery. Wait a minute, says the Son of God. Have you ever looked on a woman to lust? If you have, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. That's the thing that matters. And their righteousness is gone. They're all guilty. They thought they were innocent. They're not. He takes them through point by point in the Sermon on the Mount. He shows to them the spiritual character of God's law. And these men who thought they'd kept the law of God to perfection find their guilty at every point. And they hated him. Why? He sent them away empty. They thought they were rich. Oh, that is what he's always done. Men are very satisfied with themselves and their own lives until they look into the face of Jesus Christ. But the moment they look at him and listen to his interpretation of God's law, they begin to say this, that there is none righteous, no, not one. A man says, I'm a good fellow, I've got my code, I'm better than this man, I'm much better than that man, I do a lot of good, I'm wonderful as the Pharisee said it in the temple. And then he finds that God's law is that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. And he hasn't started. He's nowhere. He listens to Christ saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he's full of pride. He's damned already. He goes away empty. Blessed are the meek. And he's the opposite of meekness. Blessed are they that who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's boasting of his righteousness. He's sent away empty. Oh, this Son of God always sends the rich empty away. Rarely to know him and to understand his teaching brings a man to see this, the whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us, the best of us, our righteousness is but us filthy rags. But see it supremely in the case of that great man, the Apostle Paul, a soul of Tarsus. What a wonderful man he was. Israelite of the Israelites, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, and so on, knowing the law better than most other people. Yet, he suddenly meets Christ, and this is what he finds. He says, I count it all but dung. The wealth he boasted of, the riches in which he gloated, it becomes manure, refuse, vile, it's hopeless. He's gone away empty. He's nothing. He's been stripped, he's naked, he walks away empty handed. I was alive once, he says, without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Got nothing at all, the rich are sent empty away. And so it is, I say, right through this gospel. Mary's seen it. She's had a glimpse, a flash of it. He always does these things. Can't you see that he denounces and destroys and demolishes everything that man bursts in? Man bursts of his intellect, his understanding. He bursts of his power, his social status, his influence. He bursts of his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code. And every one of them is utterly demolished by this Son of God. Mary saw it. You see, this is the exact opposite of everything men thinks and boasts of. Look at it when you, look at when you see it in the people whom he blesses. Who are those who are to be blessed? Well, the answer is the babes. Them were of low degree. You see, your calling brethren, says Paul to the Corinthians... Thou oh, that not many mighty men after the, not, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound them that are mighty. Base things, things that are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. O oh, are the blessed? Here they are. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they who are poor of spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. These are the people, the nobodies. He blesses them. The world doesn't look at it like that. It's the great. It's the influential. It's the able. It's the wonderful. No, no. God's acting, and God does it in entire reverse. But notice, finally, the way in which he gives the blessing. And this is the special glory of this Christmas message. The world by wisdom knew not God. But suddenly God sends his wisdom and his revelation. These things a man can't arrive at by searching. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We have the mind of Christ. We are made wise. Here is a way whereby a man can know God. What Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and all the succession of mighty secular philosophers have failed to find is given as a free gift to the babes, those who admit that they cannot. The man who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has a knowledge of God. He has an understanding of life, an understanding of himself, which the ablest, wisest men in the world in a natural sense is entirely lacking in. I invite you almost to listen to them. I know of no preparation, better preparation for the preaching of the gospel than to ask people to listen to Bertrand Russell and Julian Huxley and the rest. Ask them for an explanation of man and of life and of death, and of God, and they've got nothing to tell you. They don't know. They're bankrupt completely. The simplest and the most ignorant Christian is a knowledge and an understanding that is completely denied to such people. I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight, the people who are wisest in the world tonight are these simple Christian people. They are not afraid of tomorrow. They are not afraid of death. They know they're in the right relationship to God. They're not surprised that the world is as it is. It's your great men who are surprised. But they say, we can't understand this. This is 20th century, and we're more learned, and we're meeting one another, and we're having conflict. Why is the world? They don't understand it. Why? Because they know nothing about sin. It's in them. They're full of it, but they don't understand it. They haven't the wisdom that God gives, the revelation that has come in Christ. Secondly, look at the way in which he exalts us. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and the other side, and exalted them of low degree. What does it mean? Well, it means this, that it doesn't matter who you are nor what you are as a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. You're a son of God. You won't appear in the New Year's honors list. they never heard of you. And the Times knows nothing about you. But thank God, you're in the court circular of heaven. Sons of God. Members of the heavenly royal family. He hath made us, says John, kings and priests unto God. Or if you prefer it, a kingdom of priests. Children of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, exalted us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You are not in any great man's will. It's all right. You're a poor person. You're an ignoramus. The world doesn't know of you. But you know, my friend, if you're a Christian, you're in God's will. You're in the will of God. And you are a joint heir with Christ. And you're going to enter into that inheritance with him. You're going to reign with him. You're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels with the Son of God. Here's the exaltation. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. Blessed be the name of God. And lastly, what a phrase is this. He hath filled the hungry with good things. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Oh, they shall be filled. The rich he hath sent empty away. We've seen that. But look at the opposite. The hungry. The man who feels he's a sinner vile. The man who feels he's a cad, the man who can't understand himself, the man who feels he's rotten, the man who says unto himself, in me, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The man who says, "O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The man who says everything I do is wrong, it's tarnished, it's sinful, my best actions are ignoble. There's nothing right about me at all. I hate myself. I cannot deliver myself. What can be done with such a wretch as I am? What about him? He shall be filled with good things. What are they? Well, righteousness. He is hungering and thirsting after righteousness is poor of spirit, he's mourning because of his sinfulness and the sins he has committed. He doesn't know what to do. Blessed is such a man, says Christ. He shall be filled with what? With righteousness. What's it mean? It means this. God sent his Son into this world in order that we might be made righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. The whole world had failed. Man, as it were, in his blind manner, tries to seek it in a sense. But he cannot. He is, He's wrong in his very notions. But suddenly he's awakened and convicted. He wants it. Suddenly he's given it. It's all in Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes Now, I say this sounds incredible. That's why people don't believe it. But this is the gospel. You know it means this. Here am I, born in sin, shapen in iniquity. I've sinned myself. My nature's is vile and rotten. I am a hopeless mass of perdition. What does the gospel tell me? That if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly entrust myself to him. Do you know what he tells me? It tells me this. His righteousness is put upon me. My sins are all blotted out. As if I'd never committed a single sin in my life. God pronounces me to be righteous. He has put to my account the righteousness of Christ. I'm a pauper, my books are empty, I've got a, not a, a farthing to pay, nothing to offer, my creditors are pressing, I'm damned, I'm doomed. Suddenly the wealth of the Son of God is put into my account. He has filled filled the hungry with good things. I mustn't keep you, my dear friends, but the message of Christmas is this, that whatever you are, you may have come into this service a pauper in rags, in a spiritual and in a moral sense. The message is this, you know, that you can go out of this service tonight filled with good things,
1: clothed
0: with the righteousness of Christ, filled with a sense of peace toward God, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace in your breast. No longer afraid of death. No longer afraid of the grave. No longer afraid of the judgment. Filled with peace. Within and towards God. Contentment. Content to let the world go by. To know no pain nor loss. my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Isn't contentment a wonderful thing? Not forever striving at what you can't get, seeking what will never come to you, but a satisfaction. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access into this grace, wherein we stand... God as Father, the eternal giver, no end to his largesse and his capacity to bless, and more, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The hungry he hath filled with good things, fruit of the Spirit, his love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. Filled with them. Oh, says Paul to the Ephesians, I'm praying for you, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that the love of Christ may come into your hearts, that you may know its breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that he may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a Christmas gift. That's what's offered. This gospel is not just an exhortation to you to join a peace society or to start organizing for peace in industry or here or there. You may do that later, but I say, have you started here? Are you filled? Are you filled with the knowledge of God? Are you filled with the righteousness of Christ? Have you got peace in your heart? Have you lost the fear of life and death and the grave and judgment and hell? Have you the joy of the Lord? Are you able to rejoice even in tribulations and in spite of circumstance and accident and chance? He hath filled the hungry with good things. Related to the Father Eternal, the giver of every good and every perfect gift, his children, his heirs. That, my dear friend is the message of salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. Mary saw it in a flash. She spoke it. She uttered it. This is the gospel. What God has done, what God is going to offer, this one that's going to be born out of me, I don't understand it, but he's going to be the benefactor of mankind. That's what he's going to give. He's going to reverse everything. He'll bring down the intellectually proud, the mighty men, the self-satisfied, the morally rich. But the common people are going to hear him gladly. He'll give us a wisdom, a knowledge, and an understanding that will baffle us to all eternity. He will make us children of God and joint heirs with himself. He will fill us, even with himself. And finally, with glory. Beloved friends, beloved people, Have you heard this message? Are you surprised now that the angels sang, that everybody sings, when they really know who he is and why he came into this world? Are you too wise for these things? If you are, you have nothing to look forward to except to be scattered. Are you too big, too great, to humble yourself? You'll be brought down. You'll lie on your deathbed in helplessness and hopelessness, in despair, realizing that you have nothing. Are you rich? The day will come when you'll realize that you're empty-handed, and of nothing at all. Humble yourself. See your need. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the babe of Bethlehem, the Christ of Calvary, the glorious one that rose in the resurrection, the King of kings, The Lord of Lords, seated at the right hand of God at this minute, the King who's coming back to reign. Fall at His feet. Believe in Him. Give yourself to Him. And He will fill you till you're overflowing with His own glorious riches. Amen.